Hi, this is Ron Hogan, and you're listening to Life Stories, a podcast series where I interview memoir writers about their lives and about the art of writing memoir. And my guest today is David Esterly, and we'll be talking about his new book, The Lost Carving, uh, which is published by Viking. One of the things I love about this memoir is that it's a memoir that is also sort of a guide to your primary form of creative expression, uh, which is wood carving both a, a personal guide to your creative process and also to a specific moment in your uh, your work history as a master carver. Yes, it is. And, you know, the parallels between writing and carving always struck me as I was writing it. Uh, it's starting with something as simple as staring at, at, a, at a blank piece of wood, which is much like looking at a blank paper or a blank screen. They kind of summoning of creative energy that you have to do in order to get started is is very similar you start sort of as a god you know i have i i'm not one to think up aphorisms but there's one that i did think up a long time ago and it stuck with me and it came right out of the workshop process and is in carving you start as a god and you end as a slave and and i think you do that in writing as well you you have to summon some kind of greater energy than usual to 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 make a start you have to, you know, have some sort of plan, some plot, some form in mind, in order just to get started. I mean, I found that as I was writing about carving, I, uh, it seemed to have all sorts of implications for other forms of activity, including writing. So that's that's one parallel that started me. One of the things that I was really interested in was the revelation that you got into carving in a very sort of indirect way. It's not like you'd always thought about being a visual artist all your life. In fact. Basically, you were heading towards a path into art history. Not only did I have no training in, in studio arts, but I really was, I was an English major all the way through. And my primary, my secondary interest was always in philosophy. So I suppose if I were headed anywhere, it was to be a professor of English. But I never really wanted to, I never really wanted to teach. Nonetheless, I'd spent many years getting one degree after another in various universities, and suddenly life just swerved in a very unexpected direction, and after that, nothing was the same. I love this idea that it's like um, you had discovered this 17th century woodcarver, and you basically felt well, it's like, well, if I'm really going to understand what this guy was up to, I need to understand the process. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I mean, my initial reaction, after I had this moment of revelation, my first reaction was, I suppose, a scholarly one that I wanted to write a book about Gibbons. And indeed, I started to uh, I started to make notes, like the good student I once was. And but soon, you're right. I did discover that, or I did decide, in order to understand how this extraordinary style of carving developed, I it would be nice to know something about the techniques and the materials and the tools. You know, my first. My first instinct was to go and get a book about it and read up on it. And then I thought, well, why not just see what it's like physically? So I bought some tools and some lime wood. And with the first stroke of the chisel, the genie was out of the bottle, and I lost interest in writing about Gibbons and started carving. And, and what was it about Grinnell Gibbons' um, visual style that leapt out at you? In, in that well, I'd never seen wood treated in this way before. It seemed to be almost another substance. Uh, it was handled with a fluency and a delicacy and realism, which I had never seen before. And also, it seemed to be a sort of hyper-organic form. And there was an interesting reinforcing quality that was taking place. I mean, it was 
a medium from the botanical world being made to portray botanical forms, and I, I like that. It, 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 seemed to, it seemed to say something that couldn't be said in any other way, and it also said it to, to, to me, it said it to the whole body, not just the mind. Um, I was responding with body and mind together. It, it, there's a wonderful um, phrase from Yeats, uh, which I've loved for years. He talks about his response to the winged victory of Samothrace, where he says that, I felt it in the soles of my feet. And he says that when he reads the Odyssey, he can smell the salt air, and he feels like taking to the sea. He calls that full body response the thinking of the body, a phrase I love. I love it for many reasons. First of all, because I think it does conjure up that feeling of unity that we have when we are responding to great art of any sort, whether it's writing or, or sculpture or architecture. And also, soon, very soon, when I started carving, it struck me as a perfect description of technical skill, the thinking of the body. So, you know, I thought, how can the same phrase encompass both our reaction to art and the creation of, the art, of art? And I came to think that it's because when we react deeply to art of any sort, we are reacting to that embedded creativity in the actual making of the art, whether it's a, you know, a novel or a piece of sculpture or a piece of music. In some ways, music is the, most, is the clearest example. I mean, when you hear Mozart, you, you are almost composing it, or anything, you know, call me maybe the late quartet, anything, you, you sort of hear it in your, in your mind as if you are composing it yourself. So you are really mimicking the artist's making, the, 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 the embroiled making of the thing. And I think that's what gives us pleasure. And you talk about in the creation of Gibbons' carvings and in your own work, one of the things that you would learn from Gibbons is this notion that, or this paradox, that one of the reasons his work looks so realistic, so lifelike, is that at a certain point he stops being mimetic. Yes, yeah. absolutely. I discovered that very early when I started to carve. Well, not so early, as a matter of fact. What I had been doing at the start was, naturally enough, thinking that if I were going to do a, this very realistic form of carving of foliage, say, leaves and flowers and so on, that what I should do is bring in a leaf, for example, and just copy it, copy it holographically which I did, uh, and I have to say it looked like a wooden leaf. And, I, and this, this really bore in on me when I saw Gibbons's work for the first time close up after the fire when I was invited over to uh, Hampton Court to have a look at it because I was doing the specifications for the repair. And seeing it close up, I, his leaves are modeled with a sort of flamboyance and an extravagance which are very unrealistic. And yet, when you look at them, especially from a distance, they suddenly... They have taken account of the different medium, and, and they, he's introduced a selective series of exaggerations. And presto, it looks, like a real, it looks like life is really pulsing through this leaf, whereas my holographically accurate leaves were just, were dead, were dead leaves. You mentioned Hampton Court, and I, I want to delve into that, because that's really sort of the core of this story, how by the, the late 80s you had become one of the most practiced in the school of Gibbons, left in the modern world. There was a fire at Hampton Court Palace in England that had damaged many of the wall hangings that Gibbons had created for the palace 200, 250 years earlier, and that you were 
Well, it's a complicated situation in terms of, I guess you should explain about whether you had sort of like agitated to be on the restoration team or, or, or even for there to be a restoration. <laughs> well, uh, I hadn't uh, agitated really. I mean, my, my original feeling, well, first of all, when I first, obviously my workshop in upstate New York and I heard about this terrible fire, I assumed that all the carpets had been burnt because of the reports I was getting from my British friends about the flames going through the roof and so on. But it turned out that actually there was only one piece that was completely destroyed. My instinct was that it should not be replaced because I, I didn't really like reproduction work. I thought it would be a sort of pale copy of the original. Anyway, it would be a sort of memorial of the fire, so why not? But I realized, assumed that the British were determined to replace it. And so ah, something erupted in me, and I thought if anybody was going to replace it, I should do it because... It's not a matter of me being one of the few people left. Mm -hmm. The tradition was dead as a doornail. There was just no, you know, it stopped a long time ago. So I think I was the only person around who was carving this kind of work from scratch, new from scratch. There were a lot of very good repair, restoration, conservation carvers, but I had grappled with the problems of starting from scratch. And anyway, I was kind of blocked at that point in my own work because I'd been operating under the shadow of Gibbons for, I guess, 10 or 12 years then. And I couldn't seem to get out from under him. It's the old problem of the anxiety of influence or what you do with a great, a great predecessor. And I certainly hadn't solved that one at all. I'd reached a point where I almost thought, well, if I just become Gibbons for a year, mysteriously, somehow, I will lay the ghost. Uh, instead, of, instead of running away from reproduction, which I'd done like mad, I never did, you know, I always tried to pour new wine in the old bottles. Maybe I can, I can, you know, kill the father by just becoming him for a year. I wasn't quite sure how that would happen, but I thought it was worth a, worth a shot. And it seems to work, that it's like that, that year of basically grappling with, with Gibbons and the legacy of Gibbons really did... Well, yes, Great but, the it's a long ones. and complicated story, mm -hmm. and it's not as straightforward as it seemed. Mm -hmm. It was part of the, you know, I found myself in in a real adventure. It was not a physical adventure. I didn't, I didn't wasn't rowing the Atlantic or anything, but it was, it was, uh, if by adventure you mean an endeavor where there's risk involved and you're pursuing a daunting goal, then it was an adventure. That's one of the reasons why I started to keep a journal, is that I, I thought it should be recorded. You know, the plot was unclear at that point, and it had many twists, yeah. and I had a long commute, so I thought I might as well just fill it. It was before iPods, so I thought I'd fill journals. As you say, in the beginning, you were like, I don't want to see, you know, I, let's not have a reproduction. And then you sort of shifted to, well, if there is going to be a reproduction, I should be doing it. From there, it was like, if we're going to do this reproduction, or rec recreation, let's produce something that looks like what Gibbons would have produced at that time. And you run against the, the palace administrators who basically say, we, no, we want something that looks like what it's come to look like now. Oh, yes. Well, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, we, I, I think we were all agreed that mm -hmm. we should try to do as exact a copy of, of the lost carving as we could, and there was there was a 1939 glass plate photograph of the piece, which was very badly look, uh, lit and made it look flat as a pancake, although in fact it projected uh, eight inches or so. Um, so we had that to go by, and also some of the other carvings in that room bore a somewhat similar shape, so we had those to go from. But, it, but when it was 
over, that's I think what you're referring to. This question is, for example, or mainly the question is, what color should it be? Exactly. Now, originally, Gibbons left his work completely unfinished with any by any sort of, you know, there's no varnish or anything on it. And limewood, which is what the British call linden wood, is the palest wood in the forest. It's ghostly pale. And this is one of Gibbons' great innovations, is to leave his wood virtually white, and it was then attached to a darker oak paneling. And so the, the carvings floated in a ghostly way in front of it, and it brought the, the carved scheme to the fore of any decor decoration. It actually turned it into virtually sculpture, because his approach was always sculptural. sculptural. So anyway, but the the uh, the other carvings had grown brown over the years, in, in recent years, by smoke of one sort or other, and just general aging. And people had grown accustomed to seeing carvings brown, and we still think of wood as brown, essentially, and that's the sort of default setting. So it was thought that it would be just too great a shock in these well-loved buildings to suddenly see these ghostly carvings. And so I lost that argument. I mean, I then retreated to a secondary argument where I said, well, look, why don't you at least leave mine the original color? And then people will know it's a reproduction and, you know, the memorial to the fire and so on. And they can have a sense of what, it's, what the original carvings were like. But that, too, was rejected with much bloodshed. It seemed like there was this really strong tension during that whole year of your desire to put forward this idea of, you know, let's really sort of bring Gibbons's artistic achievement and his his pivotal role forward and, and let's start resuscitating that and talking about it again versus this more conservative notion of, well, you know, he's an icon, let's just keep him an icon and not actually have to you know, grapple with that too much. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, in any restoration project, there are two criteria for how you present the work when you're finished. The first is the original intention of the artist, and the second would be the traditional appearance of the work. And sometimes the two war against one another. At the Sistine Chapel, for example, whenever it was, 20 years ago, where they had always been this sort of moody gray, but underneath there were Michelangelo's original bright colors. And there were people who wanted to keep it moody gray because it's been that way for 100, 200 years, but the bright color people won out. But in this case, both arguments argued for, uh, for making them light because although they were brown at that point, that is in the 1980s, in fact, they had been light for one reason or other up until the early years of the 20th century because when they went dark in the 18th century, in the first place, Gibbons was given 100 pounds a year to keep his carvings light, and that's, that was a gentleman's income. It was, they realized it was an important feature of them. And then after he died, they gradually turned dark, and somebody towards the end of the 18th century, 100 years later, realized that the effect was being lost, and so they washed them with a white wash, which is not a bad solution, because it's not like paint. You can see, see it's wood, and yet they, it, was, it was lightened. And we had excellent evidence that they were basically white until the early years of the 20th century. I mean, I thought it was a strong argument, but I lost. I lost out. You mentioned earlier the journals that you had been keeping. The memoir process revolves around you discovering those three notebooks that you had kept during this year at Hampton Court in the late 80s, about 20 years later? Yes, yes. A after I'd finished, somebody, uh, 
or during the year, somebody at the palace got wind of the fact that I was keeping a journal, and they said, well, why when you're finished, just give them to us, and we'll archive them, and, you know, they'll go in with all the Christopher Wren and Henry VIII stuff, and then a uh, hundred years later, they'll turn up, and it, they'll be interesting, and I thought that was quite a good idea, and I almost gave it to them, but in the end, I didn't. I don't know why, I just, I, I just didn't. And I brought them back and put them in a bottom drawer. There they lay for 20 years, virtually forgotten. I mean, I knew they were there, but I never looked at them. And then one day, and this is the way the book starts out, I was, uh, I was just looking at all the, at the um, pictures and prints on my walls. And it was picture, pictures of Gibbons, pictures of my own Cambridge College, pictures of Hampton Court. And I realized that they were all like souvenirs of this period. And it got my mind thinking again. And I had to think where I put the, and I thought about the notebooks and remembered where I put them, found them, opened one up, and it was just like being at Hampton Court again. You know, I could smell the stone passages. It, it, it was like early, I mean, it was as bright and fresh as could be. And I had what the Freudians would call an apreaction. It was, it was as if I was experiencing the events for the first time. And I found this very interesting because it was, in a way, the best of two worlds. Because I was able to experience long past events freshly. But on the other hand, I had the perspective of 20 years on it. So I knew where the plot it was going, so to speak. So I thought I could sort of triangulate between those two and, you know, spend the year writing about the year, the year, the two years reflecting one another seasonally and everything else, this time from my, the perspective of my present work in the, in the wilds of upstate New York. And they would kind of mirror one another in a stimulating way. Right, because you do flash forward a couple of times in the telling of this story to your current work process and the directions that your own carving has taken since that year. You know, it causes me to reflect on how I got to where I was and what had changed over the years. I don't know, it just, uh, I don't think I really understood the, the whole story of Hampton Court until I let it process for 20 years. I don't think I even understood the original story. Now, is this the first time that you've really sort of delved into your own process and, and written about it for for public consumption? Well, pretty much. I, on occasion, I've had to write articles about something or other, and I do glancingly look towards that. But it's the first time that I've really plunged into it. And, and, and what I realized, having reading the journals again, was that, what, that I was being carried by the tide of those events into a more basic understanding of what making is, what, what it means to make a thing well. Making in the broadest sense, whether it's designing a garden or writing a novel or, or anything like that, the rhythms of it. And I think it was because of certain special conditions that have to court. So paradoxically, in this copying situation, I understood for the first time what it was to create a thing originally. And it wasn't just because I was copying and so I could tell the difference between the two. It was much more subtle than that. It was, there was a process in the copying where I had to suddenly work originally. And there was this transitional moment where I saw what it meant to take your signals from what, what you had created in front of you and to be guided by that instead of the original plan or design that you came with. And, and that, that to me is, is very, 
very important. And that's, you know, if I had to encapsulate what the book was about from the philosophical point of view, it would be about that moment. There are these technical aspects to this project that you write about, trying to figure out, well, how did Gibbons do this thing that seems impossible to have done based on what you currently know about his options. But as you say, there's also that philosophical um, underpinning. For example, there's a really great section where you talk about the difference between being a master carver and finding these solutions in the process, in the art of creation, and being a conceptual artist who you know comes up with it. You know, I think it'd be nice to have a bust of me and my wife. <laughs> or you know, let's do a statue of Michael Jackson and, and his chimp. Hire who can, somebody. Who can you be referring to? <laughs> Who exactly could you be referring to at this point? Oh, that's right. And I think about conceptual art, it's really not interested in, in execution at all. I mean, it's that's just something. Art is in the mind. Art is ideas. That's where art happens. It happens in the, in the mind of the artist, and then it's reproduced in the mind of the observer, and execution is really not very important. I mean, after all, what sculptor worth his salt these days makes his or her own work even though I don't want to go on a rant about contemporary art at all because you know I, I enjoy some of this stuff um, but I just want to draw a distinction between art of that sort and art of the sort that I and Gibbons and Michelangelo and, you know people like that that's quite comfortable quite a, quite a group I don't even include myself in them but traditional the, the way art is traditionally done you know, can you imagine that process being done with writing a novel, where you, you get a brilliant plot idea? Well, actually, I guess there are novels. The, the, we, they, <laughs> they, they, they do have um, idea factories, basically. Exactly, of course. You know, I forgot about that. But at least they don't have CNC machines, which are these uh, automated carving machines where you just put in the program and it comes out. Or maybe there is somebody who's done it programmed yeah, we haven't automated machine. that fully yet no not fully we have to work on that but, and and the fact that you do you know you do need somebody to write the story and that yeah, the idea that person comes up with it? it uh it points to this thing that you talk about in terms of gibbons's workshop at the time that you've come to believe that gibbons basically gave his subordinates a large degree of Creative freedom, in, in, in essence, trusted them Absolutely. to find their own path yeah, to the designs that he laid out. Yeah, these were not like the factotum workers under a conceptualist at all. These were people who, well, they were they were almost as good as Gibbons. In fact, it's very hard to tell Gibbons's hand from them. They were su supremely good carvers, yet they were content to work anonymously, partly because they had the security of working for Gibbons, who was the most famous, uh, one of the famous artists of his time. But also because I think once they, once Gibbons had hit upon a design and, you know, sawn out the outside to control the shape of it and done some probably rough sketches, they understood his vocabulary, they understood his turns of phrase, they could mimic those, they knew, and they knew, they knew why he did, why, why he evolved those, because they worked visually. But then, from that point on, I think they were kind of on their own. I think they sailed their own way through the stormy seas on the workbench. I think that they understood the choices that were available to them. And, and that's, you know, when I had my moment of revelation in the middle of carving, it was exactly because there was this uncanny moment when I I completed a part of the carving to a sort of middle phase where the forms were larval and half-completed 
And suddenly, as I had said before, it's as if Gibbons walked in the room, and or his assistant, and I was seeing through their eyes. I was seeing exactly the choices that they had that day in 1698, and I could see why they made those choices. And then I didn't have so much to look at the design I'd worked up. I was, you know, I was, I was in the process itself, and that's where the creativity came out of. And I could see that that's very satisfying, even if you're working for somebody else. As you're writing this memoir, you talk a little bit about the direction that your work is taking, including some of the pieces that, at the time that we are recording this, um, you've just opened up an, a new exhibit in New York City that includes one or two of, of the pieces that you talk about in the memoir. I'm thinking primarily of the letter racks, yes. uh, which you touch upon briefly. It seems like it's, on in one sense, you do have a, you, this idea of where your work is headed. But as you say also, because you work strictly on a patronage basis, there's a degree to like where your work is headed depends on where people want it, what you, what they want you to do. Well, exactly. And it really depends on my persuading them that they want to do what I want to do. That's the way the arts used to work. I mean, that's the way sculpture used to work. You don't imagine that Bernini, kind of in his quiet workshop, carved a bust and then put it out for sale. No, it was all commissioned. But Bernini, or all of those great artists, had their own agenda. They knew what they wanted to do. So the part of the process of art, of their art, was to get a patron to want to do what they want to do. So they tend to be very charming people or powerful personalities. They also tend to be very good draftsmen. So they could, I mean, Bernini could turn out a sketch which would win over anybody. And alas, I'm not so good at draftsmen. Uh, not as good a, a draftsman as he, by any means. Um, so yes, it, it's. Uh, I like it. I like working on commission. In fact, I, I very much prefer it. It's it's an exposed position. It's kind of like carving itself, which is a subtractive art. You don't have full control over. When you go wrong, you kind of blow the whole thing, as it were. But you know, it's an interesting question. Is is writing a subtractive art or is it an additive art? I've thought about this a lot as I was um, writing the memoir. I mean, it starts out in additive art, like painting. You add a sentence, you write a sentence, you add another sentence, you add another sentence, and you just gradually build up more and more sentences. And yet, if it is true, as they say, and I think they're right, that writing is rewriting, it's a subtractive art. You know, you have a body that you develop, and then you take stuff away, like mad shape it and hollow it out, so to speak. That's another parallel which I found very interesting in, in writing this, uh, this memoir. Writing is a form of expression and creativity that, at least in this project, it seems like you were doing it for yourself to begin with and then eventually found somebody to take it. Is writing, more writing of this nature uh, something that you foresee yourself doing? I'm a carver who writes, not a writer who carves. And I don't have that real writer's driven impulse, you know, I write, therefore I am. That is not something that as yet operates in me. But having said that, there is nobody I admire more than a good writer. I mean, I think that writing is this, is really one of the supreme human achievements. I mean, Shakespeare is, is, just, is my idea of a consummate consummate human genius in any field. It has a, a horrible fascination about it, writing, I have to say. And I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I suppose it all depends on whether I start to keep a journal again, because that's what seems to come out of, at least in my case. So maybe I will, maybe I won't. Who knows?
Well, the book that we do have is The Lost Carving by David Esterly. And anybody who is interested in the creative process and finding a way to make a life around the creative process, I encourage you to check this out. It's from Viking. You have been listening to Life Stories at Beatrice.com. My name is Ron Hogan, and I hope to be with you again for another episode sometime soon. Thank you.